1: Hello, I am Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Madeline Black. After many years of keeping quiet, Madeline decided in September 2014 to share her story on the Forgiveness Project's website, Uh, and I have interviewed the uh, director of that project, an amazing project, and she completely underestimated what the response would be. Many women and men got in contact and explained how reading her story gave them strength, hope, and a different perspective on what's possible in their lives. The founder of The Forgiveness Project, Marina, often refers to the various people on her websites as story healers, I like that a lot, rather than storytellers, and now she knows why. In March 2015, Jessica Kingsley Publishers released a book called The Forgiveness Project, Stories for a Vengeful Age by Marina Cattacosino. It's a collection of 40 stories from the Forgiveness Project website, including um, Madeline's and and, uh, many others. Um, It also has forewords by Desmond Tutu and Alexander McCall Smith. The sharing of her story opened doors for her in ways she never imagined, and invitations came in, including um, I heard about her from The Forgiveness Project. Today we're going to be talking a lot about the book she has since put out, Unbroken, One Woman's Journey to Rebuild a Life Shattered by Violence, a True Story of Survival and Hope. Welcome, Madeline. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, one... one. Um, Misassumption that people often have of my about my show is that it's always about losses that are that have to do with death. Mm-hmm. But of course, as a counselor, you know too, there are many, many griefs other yeah. than that. And I appreciate um, you coming to talk about um, loss of childhood, violence, and the losses that come with that, and just. Uh, Uh, you know bring in that aspect of grief so thank you you're welcome um you have quite a a a terrible and and then ultimately redeeming story and I wonder if we could just start with you telling some of the outline for listeners that don't know your book about what happened and uh and where that led for you Sure.
2: So my story starts in the late 1970s when I was 13 years old and I was gang-raped by two American... T- it's obviously something that had a huge impact on me for a lot of my life, but near to the end of having therapy the very last time wasn't something that I ever planned to do, but forgiveness kind of came into my way of thinking and it just changed everything for me. It. Everything that I was holding on to.
1: You know, I th- I think that's very, very interesting because reading the book, I couldn't imagine you getting to forgiveness kind of sooner than you did. Mm-hmm. And I felt that was so important that uh, because there's this sort of sense that forgiveness is what we should do. that That's kind of out there. But uh, timing is everything, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it, where I'm at today has been a process that hasn't happened overnight. And as you've read my book, you saw that I tried talking therapy and many different types of body therapy and alternative therapies. And it was really when my eldest daughter was turning 13 that lots of my memories returned. And it was in those moments I went back to therapy and they weren't born rapists. And at first I was completely outrage. I was so angry that he could suggest such a thing to me, but, you know, he planted a seed in my mind, and it, it started to grow, and I really wanted to understand, well, what happened to them? How did they know to be so violent at such a young age? They weren't that much older than me. I wanted to understand what they had seen or heard or experienced themselves, because, you know, I, I think he's right. I think we all do come into this world just like a blank sheet and something conditioned them to forgiveness really surprised me it wasn't ever something in my consciousness or my thinking but ultimately it was my key to freedom I let go of all the hate and the revenge and the anger that I was harboring towards them and they would have had no idea that I was full of all this anger and hate it was only hurting me and my family yeah
1: you know, I I've I'm sure you've heard the expression um, uh, non-forgiveness is drinking the poison and expecting somebody else to die. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I love love the best revenge idea because I think we can't start with, it doesn't, well, I don't believe it makes much sense to forgive acts anyway. It's people that we Mm -hmm. end up giving humanity back to, but... Um, it doesn't make much sense to forgive the terrible things that people do. No, I could
2: never forgive the act of rape. It was a total violation on my, my body, my mind, my psyche. So that is really unforgivable. But I could understand, maybe is a better word, what led them to behave that way. And that is what I think, really helps everyone just to bring an understanding to a situation and it just to allow me to let go of all that I was holding on to. It just brought me peace. It was just much, It's a much easier way for me to run my life where I'm at now.
1: You know, I was also thinking back. I have three daughters that are all grown now, mm-hmm. and I was thinking back to them at 13 when this happened in your life, and how little they wanted to tell me about their experience uh even though we're a talking family you know but that was a I want to keep things to myself age so there's that then there's the threat you were under about speaking it seemed to me that it there was a lot of damage added by the fact that you were so alone with it
2: yes no I absolutely agree it took me you know like a about three years to find my voice and then I couldn't actually physically speak the words I had to write the words down and when I did finally share what had happened uh, there was another girl involved and she said it hadn't happened like I said it had so it had taken me all this time to find my voice and then I Mm. Um, was yeah that is the hardest thing is to find your voice because also you know I was threatened with if I speak about it they will kill me and, and I believe them really but also i just was so uh wrapped with both of them i thought well i had brought it on myself because we had been drinking and we stayed where we weren't meant to be staying and and i was just uh, so ashamed i thought if anybody found out what to me that they would be disgusted the way that i was disgusted about myself
1: but that's such a a young person's things thing to do is hold ourselves responsible. Uh, of course, older people too, yeah. <laughs> we get in that yes. habit. But yeah. I I really felt uh, and the impact of of how isolated that left you and mm-hmm. and the part of you that I guess I would say sort of gave up. Would that yep. be fair to say? Um, oh, well, then, you know, a big black hole. <laughs> yeah. And and then the way that it seemed as if that added more onto the pile. Mm-hmm. Can you talk well, a little bit about that, that process of, you know, the, the pile building, because you didn't find a way to talk, you couldn't find a way to talk about it a safe way? It's a very strange thing, because it, it took me a long, long
2: time to remember all the details. But all I knew was after it, it had happened to me that nothing ever felt right, and I just felt very black, and I just really wanted to not be here. So I really um, decided to try to end my life. Obviously, I didn't succeed, but I spent about eight weeks in a children's psychiatric ward after trying to kill myself. I took an overdose, and yeah, things they they never really got to the bottom of what was happening with me. They just nobody ever asked me the right questions and so after leaving there I didn't really feel an awful
1: thing i could just to numb out really it it's interesting because there's there's that period of time like 13 to maybe 1819 mm-hmm. um you know there's a lot of natural rebellion it's it's kind of hard to tell what's going on, whether something happened or whether, mm-hmm. you know. Yes, and and
2: that's what they put it down to, that I was just, a, you know, an adolescent teenager that was flooded with hormones. But to me, I think, you know, I went from someone that was kind of quite normal to someone who couldn't speak or eat. I developed. Yes. Now I look back, I think it must have been obvious something had happened to me, but nobody ever got to the bottom of it. Do and I obviously believe- wasn't speaking so that didn't help
1: <laughs> right well you can't know the answer to this question but do you believe that had someone found a way to ask you mm-hmm. you might have told them
2: I don't know if I could have spoken the words but maybe I could have not uh-huh down you know maybe I could have communicated it in in some kind of way I don't know if somebody asked me I don't know how they would have asked me did somebody no Um mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping that things are different for young people now or or people seeking support or help
1: well, you know it, 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 i I have a situation in in my family where similarly a note was left mm-hmm. that got read and it was actually discussed and and I do think that helps yeah um you know, the the person I'm thinking about that this happened to uh, doesn't seem to have huge residual, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, yeah. Of course, at this point, I wouldn't say you either, but there were years in there where it certainly seemed to affect how life went for you very yeah. much.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think I could have found the words then. It had mm-hmm. support straight away.
1: Not how it happened. <laughs> Right. So, it seemed to me that. So I don't. You didn't point this out, but it seemed to me that meeting your husband, mm-hmm. feeling love, real, real love from someone, made it possible to start repairing. Absolutely. Would that be fair to stay say? So maybe Absolutely. you can talk about meeting him and what that was like and sure. how it kind of contradicted what came yeah. before, in a way. I mean,
2: I really felt at the time he was like an angel sent to save me. That mm. when I first met him, I couldn't believe that he wanted to be with me. I used to drive the poor man mad and say, but why do you want to be with me? Why do you love me? Why are you with me? And he would just say, just because I do, just because I love you. So after a while, I got to see that, I was lovable, and by him loving me, I was able to extend my love back because I had really numbed out and, you know, I had put a barrier between me and other people just to protect myself, you know, a defense mechanism. And love really was the way, you know, love will always win over hate, absolutely.
1: Mm. And that's such an unanswerable question. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of that now. Uh, You can say a lot of things about person, but it doesn't really explain love, Mm -hmm. that kind of love, that's just sort of, you're just my person. Yeah, yes, that's it. (laughs) Simple as that. (laughs) Yeah, and so after a while I had to stop asking him the question and just accept it. (laughs) Uh It may not make sense, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a break now, listeners, and you can find my website and my social media at the Good Greet page at Voice America. for Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And you can find Madeline at Madeline, that's M-A-D-E-L-E-I-N-E black.co.uk Be back soon.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness relationship issues anxious parenting challenges no more learn how to live your best life tune into straight talk with top psychotherapist relationship and anxiety expert sandra rich in this program you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions whether it's relationships
0: Or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go. On iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Madeline Black about her book, Unbroken, uh, about her rape at 13 and her her um, transformation over her life uh, to forgive and to uh, face up to that situation. And I wanted to start this segment, Madeline, talking about facing up to it because mm-hmm. – uh, i th- i I've certainly worked with many people who are not sure the value of actually you know remembering all the details um mm-hmm. kind of uh reliving in a sense is how people look at it at first, and I noticed in your book how important that was for you um, you know to to actually uncover uh those memories inside of yourself could you talk some about that
2: sure so as i mentioned earlier when my eldest daughter started to be a combination of that and i was also studying psychotherapy and i was going to kind of some personal development workshops and i think all of those things together my memory started to come back and at first you know, I just thought I was going a bit mad. I thought if 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 it was so bad, then why didn't I remember it? But now I understand it's because it was so bad. That's why I didn't remember it. So I thought really um, I needed to go back to therapy to, to really clean it all up. And my idea of therapy was to make it all go away again. But I realized, obviously, mm. that we can't make it when you're really ready to face things, uh, your mind believes it's strong enough, I think it will numb it out for so long and then it will come back. And it really took me a good three years and I had had you know, different treatments and therapies in the past and in the end I saw it wasn't really so much what they did to me, it was now what I was doing with the memories, my refusal to believe it, my denial, that was causing me more anxiety than actually what they did to me. And in the end, I just had to say, okay, you know, I have to accept all that they've done to me. Otherwise, I'm just going to drive myself crazy. So I really found a way, I guess, maybe to desensitize myself. I had to really face all that was done and all the details and just accept that, you know, they didn't kill me. I am still alive. I am still here, and I am okay. I have a really, really good life.
1: It's it's almost, I almost felt reading your book as if that could only be the past Mm -hmm. when you allowed it to be real. Yeah. Uh, It's not exactly what you said in the book, I guess, but that's how it felt to me reading that. Then it became a memory instead of a Present. Yes, I guess
2: it's, it's the, the paradox, isn't it? The thing that we don't want to do, like to remember it or to look at it, is actually the very thing that is going to help us when we step into our vulnerability. It's actually when we grow. And when. We-
1: and, and also I was struck by the fact that um, you gave up the idea of trying to have it be logical and uh, sort it out and just let it be An experience. Yeah, well, it's
2: it's not really logical, I guess, in any way, really, is it? It was such a, a violent interruption to my life. I just had to accept it for what it was, and that was really me putting down my own weapons of fighting about it and fighting with it because it was really just driving me crazy and causing major anxiety and nightmares and flashbacks and panic and loads of things. So I just had to find a way to just really accept all that they did to me.
1: I, I, uh, You know, I've been a therapist for a long time, and mm-hmm. uh, there was a period in which a lot of people uh, – recovered memories such as yours Mm -hmm. uh, that there was encouragement for that and they were very very real and -hmm. then it felt to me like because of a few people a dramatic minority Mm -hmm. um kind of got convinced that things that hadn't happened had happened there has been this sort of controversy about you know memory yep and especially memory of trauma. And it's I think it's very unfortunate. And I, I um, thought it was so valuable to read how you knew things were real, you mm-hmm. know, uh, which well, – which, go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, I couldn't really trust my mind
2: because I thought my mind was a bit crazy. So the, the thing that really helped me was all the body therapies that, that really – made me realize I couldn't make that up on purpose. You know, even in my talking therapy, I would begin to shake or I would be sick or, you know, when I first went to therapeutic massage, for example, somebody recommended it to me, I could hear this person screaming and shouting and kicking and pushing the person away. And then I realized it was me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, where did all that come from? Mm. So I think all, all our trauma is... In ourselves, on a cellular level, and it it shifts and it moves to the surface when we work it, and and we need it to move, we need it to shift because when we, it causes other issues as
1: well. Mm, absolutely. So, as I understand it, you were you had already trained as a therapist when your oldest daughter turned thirteen. Is yeah. that right? Yep, I was at college studying psychotherapy. So the two must have gotten very connected. Do you work a lot with trauma?
2: Intentionally put that out there, but somehow I energetically attract it. <laughs> so uh, a lot of my clients have had uh, sexual violence, sexual abuse, rape issues.
1: It, it, that's interesting to me because, uh, you know, once I, I I was training when my wife died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when she was sick, and then when she died, and and so um, I have a similar affinity with grief work mm-hmm. and illness work. Um, I think we do our live experiences do come into that work, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully so.
2: Hopefully. Yeah. So. <laughs> and but from a, from a good place as well, you know. Um, me or and they know that you can move past things and i always hold that hope as well when i'm working with clients you that's know, because something i've makes seen them out. It. yeah yeah i've mm-hmm. seen it i've experienced it for myself i know that we're not really what happens to us we are what we do with it and if we really choose to
1: eventually you can get past it that as you said <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but but the, but the next thing i wanted to talk about was just the amazing number of things That you did that um, I don't know if you knew they were all connected uh, at the time but in the book it's very clear they built on each other Um, and and some of them were not uh, necessarily intuitive in terms of healing from trauma Mm -hmm. but I can see that they all contributed like windsurfing and Mm -hmm. you know a little more direct connection with the martial arts when you did that. Mm-hmm. But uh, did you know when you were driven to, to do these various things, running, you know, mm-hmm. that they were somehow connected to that experience? I was aware at
2: the time, but the windsurfing and the karate, that was when I got to the point in my life where I realized that I still carried a lot of fear. It was when I was going through the therapy. And it took me a long time to have my children. And I just thought, what kind of mum will I be if I have all this fear and I put all my fear onto my kids? So I had to find a way to face all my fears. So at that point, I was very intentional. I did go out of my way to do the things that scared me or put me in situations that I would have avoided, which was mainly being out of control and being around men. So when I first went windsurfing, I was terrified. I hated being out of control and falling in or going too far out, not coming back in. And, and karate as well. I was mainly still today is just one or two women in a room full of about 40 guys. Um, but now, you know, that doesn't scare me at all. I guess it was a bit like exposure therapy.
1: <laughs> but you kind of made that decision on your own in a sense, didn't you? I did. I just got to a place where I just
2: got tired of being scared. I didn't want my life to, you know, fear had been my friend for too long, and I just just wanted to break up. (laughs) I didn't want to be
1: afraid anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know, I guess the thing I most want to say is, what, what I find is I'm working with people, and they have these impulses, like you did, mm-hmm. but they don't have enough belief in their own intuition to kind of follow them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I know a little of the explanation why you did have the resiliency to do all these things that were impossibly hard. Mm-hmm. You know, that put you right up against your worst fears, in a way. Uh, what, what, what do well, you think I helped was, you? Well, I was very determined. I just refused
2: to be identified by what had happened to me, and that has always driven me, I think, in the background. But I think I am very lucky to the, the family that I was born with. Both of my parents go through major traumas, and they both have come out amazingly well. My mum had her neck broken in a routine kind of operation in the hospital and was a couple of years bedridden, but she fought back to health. And my dad was a Holocaust survivor who'd lost both his parents, brothers and sisters, and he refused to be identified by what had happened to him. And he went on to meet my mum and had five of us. And he had so much by what he said, it was how he lived his life, that there I saw we can really get past having your whole family murdered and going through a Holocaust and, and come out okay.
1: And, and if, if that's doable, I, I feel that's got to be a big impi- impact that you have on people yeah. when you share your book and, and speak and such that there's no way to, to say that you're sort of saying this can, can happen but you don't know mm-hmm. because you do know. I do know <laughs> if you can come back from what happened to you, no. No. Uh, there's kind of no room to say it can't be done, yeah, when I would look at my dad and I think that
2: surely I can get past one night, that was how I used to look at it.
1: Mm. I think there's a there's a big lesson in that for you know, I used to I had children that were still pretty young when my wife was sick and dying and mm-hmm. uh, if I had thought this will ruin them forever I don't know how I would have lived through that time mm-hmm. and so I I always have had the mind to what are they gonna make of this hmm and and trying to uh, feed them a way to make something out of it um, but, you know, that's me as an adult, <laughs> kind of yeah. looking out for them. I couldn't have done that at 13, have that sense of, you know, but you you were seeing it around you.
2: Yeah, uh, when it took me, I didn't have this attitude when I was 13, it took me a long time, and when I met Stephen, my husband, we'd been married for a few years, and, you know, when I first met have children and he was fine I just said in my mind it was going to be too much like being raped again and I just couldn't face that the the idea of intimate examinations and men whilst I was giving birth all of it just freaked me out and then he'd ask me again and again and eventually I just thought well if I never have kids then they're going to take away a huge chunk of my life and I didn't want them to have that power and that was when I really came up with my plan I call my best revenge and I just thought I am going to live my life as good as I can. And I just refuse to be identified. But that took me really till I was about 25, I would say, to like that. When I started to fight back and claim myself again.
1: And it's interesting, isn't it, that that original impulse is an angry one? Like, Mm -hmm. they can't have this. Yep. Right? I'm not going to let them have my life. Uh-huh. And then that eventually led you to uh, forgiveness, it did, which, yes. which is a very yeah. different quality from that anger, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. It's much more peaceful now. And the reactions to the forgiveness element from different people, and I'm not saying that you need to forgive and heal your life. You can clearly move on without forgiveness, but this was my personal choice, and this is what really... Helped me, and it's it is like I said before about understanding that we are all human, and we all come in the same way. Where I work now, my manager used to be a midwife, and she once said to me that she has delivered thousands of babies, and she has never once met an evil baby. And that mm. has always, always stayed with me. You know how we end up getting voices in life. You know, it's what shapes us.
1: Yes. Mm. how old are your children now Madeline?
2: Now i have a 16 21 and 24 year old They
1: they're all uh, I I like this idea that's that's been around lately that adolescence is 12 to 24 so they're okay. all adolescents
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That sounds about right
1: <laughs> yeah, It does you you have many good things to look forward to there Mine are 24 and up. (laughs) They're grown-ups
2: now, if we ever grow up. (laughs) If
1: we ever grow up, exactly. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the Forgiveness Project and how you first got involved with that, because I know you do quite a bit of work with that organization, yeah? yeah? It was really, I guess, through the
2: powers of social media. And it was about the time that the forgiveness idea was in my mind, and I was just kind of came across them on the internet on their Facebook page. And I was having conversations with a few other people. And then Marina kind of heard about my story and she messaged me privately and said she'd like to feature my story on their website. And at first, she said to me, Um, You know, you don't need to have your picture, you don't need to have your name, you could be anonymous. But I had been chatting to someone online and she was going to prison to meet the serial rapist who broke into her home to rape her. And I just thought, gosh, if she could do that, I don't want to be ashamed anymore. I I don't want to hide myself and not put my face. And I just said, no, put my picture and put my name up. I just thought I've had enough of being ashamed and I had enough of hiding and I didn't want that anymore.
1: And so, again, that was at a moment of readiness.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, in the past, I had I had done a few articles for newspapers, and uh, then I was one of these women that had a blanked-out face, and I had no name. But it, So it's been a slow process over the time, getting more into the media. But at this time, I just thought, nope, uh, no more hiding. I've got nothing to be ashamed about. But that has taken me years to get to this place, to say that, you know, I carried all this shame, but it was inappropriate shame. The shame belongs to the perpetrators. And this, the silence, that the, my shame silenced me, it just hurts. It, it hurts me, and it, it protects the, the perpetrators as well. So I will intentionally speak out now and write to really, I want to help end the shame and the silence and the stigma that just surrounds sexual violence.
1: And you have um, the strength to do that in a way, or the I the healing to, to do now. it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems to me like when people do that, quote unquote, too early or before they are ready, um, yep. that it backfires in a sense. Yeah, uh, kind of leads to more shame. And um, yep. so apparently you've you've picked right time. And then uh, is it is it. I imagine that the good it does for other people then reinforces your own sense of, of being able and ready. Absolutely. I
2: mean, I, I wouldn't be able to do this if I wasn't really okay with where I'm at now. And I'm really, really okay with all that happened to me. It doesn't trigger me or affect me in any way at all. So, you know, I had to really get to a place where I'm okay to do it. And I, I never really intended to end up where I'm at to be speaking publicly or writing a book. You know, I'm quite surprised as well. So I really just <laughs> yeah it's doing, and I just go with the flow. I don't really plan any of it, and it just seems to happen. Uh,
1: I That's something I notice a lot of my guests and, and my own experience have in mm-hmm. common, that when you've had to learn how to follow your nose in a way, mm-hmm. uh, how to just follow your intuition through a, a very unknown sort of place. Uh, mm-hmm. you trust those intuitions a little better. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. it's It's easier for me to listen, I guess than yeah. it was at one point in my life for sure. So when we we it's almost time for a break, but um, when we come back, I'm uh, I'm very interested in talking about, you know, the title of your book unbroken in mm-hmm. in my mind refers to the fact that we are more than what happens to us absolutely um and you know that there isn't that there is a being beyond those experiences and when we get back i really want to talk about that because i don't think it's defined the same way for different people and i'm very curious how you define that for yourself who and okay. what you are beyond Any experience that you've had in your life so uh, I hope you'll indulge me in that when we get back from the break okay Uh, and and listeners you can go to my website weatherandgrief.com you can go to the host page at Good Grief and you can find Madeline Black at madelineblack.co.uk back soon
3: Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern
2: Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Madeline Black, the author of Unbroken. And Madeline, before the break, uh, I I said I wanted to talk about, you know, you say several times in the book, I'm not, I'm more than what happened. Uh and and I took that to mean beyond that one night, too, that we're not just our experiences. And, I, you know, I have some thoughts about that, but I'm really curious how you think of yourself beyond that experience or even other experiences. What did you get in touch with when you realized that wasn't you? That I think I get the impression has contributed to a very strong sense of yourself in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I don't
2: know if, it was, again, it was an intentional thing, but it came at the end of the last time I was having therapy for three years when it was all mixed in with the forgiveness and everything. And I, when I finally had to accept what they did to me, I just thought, well, you know, I couldn't trust my mind. I thought, well, I'm not really my mind. What is my mind? If we cut it open, it doesn't actually bleed. Then I thought, I'm not. I'm not my body, I'm not the things that they did to me i'm I'm just more than that, and it wasn't even it's just a, just a knowing that came into me that we are not the things that happen to us, okay, the events shape our life, but we're more than all of those events, and yet paradoxically, we are all those events as well, so I don't know, it just seemed to make sense that i'm I'm not what they did to me. I'm much more than that and all of us are much more than our events and it's the working it and the cleaning it up that allowed me to get to that place where i could see that
1: and then to you know you you talk a lot about just wanting to live mm-hmm. ha- having a strong desire for the feeling of aliveness not just mm-hmm. kind of i'm i'm paraphrasing but not just kind of the experience of of the heart beating <laughs> yeah you know yeah, well,
2: for, for but, a long time i just was on autopilot okay i i'd had my, i met my husband and i had my kids but i wasn't really living mm. safe and controlled and i had to learn to let go of all of that and that's really when i felt more alive it's really helping us but it doesn't really <laughs> so now life is a bit more spontaneous and freer and yeah i feel more alive than i ever did before
1: well there's something in the mind that knows that we can't that we don't have control don't you think absolutely once never some- really
2: in control
1: <laughs> <laughs> you have some influence that's about the size of it isn't yeah. it <laughs> You yeah. talked about, uh, I don't know if it was in the book, actually, or whether I saw it on, on uh, you know, I watched a few interviews you gave and mm-hmm. such, but it sounds as if you talked honestly with your daughters about what happened. I don't know how or to what degree. But well, it mainly uh, was came very, from my yeah, it
2: mainly came from my place of fear to start with, because I was always paranoid the same thing would happen to them. And I wanted them to know that whatever happened, if they were out one night, if they were drunk or they'd been doing drugs or they were scared, whatever, that just to phone us. And we would come and get them. We would never tell them off. I just wanted them to be safe. So in that conversation, I did tell them what happened to me. But they still didn't listen. <laughs> 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 as you know teenagers they have to try and find out for themselves luckily no harm has ever come to them but yeah they still went out and got drunk and did the things that i did rather they hadn't done but actually i'm pleased that they got drunk and were safe and and nothing happened to them uh for them to realize how out of control that they were and they you know they saw saw that something could have happened they didn't have their
1: they they realized that they actually were at some risk. Yeah. Even yeah. though they learned on their own, ooh, that was kind of risky, yeah. maybe I'll modify yeah. next time. But huh? I think that's the way we have
2: to learn, unfortunately. You know, we can't be told, we have to experience it. Unfortunately for me, I had a very, very big lesson in my learning the first time I went out and got drunk. but And it wasn't because I was drunk, but it just made me a lot more vulnerable that night.
1: Well... I mean, it resonates with something that I that I um, have always felt um, with with my kids that if I added my own experience to it, they might Mm not do it, but they wouldn't be able to completely discount it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think you should do this, you know, (laughs) as just a sort of parental uh, admonition. Or judgment but more as an outgrowth of my experiences mm. that that seems to have of course they, they haven't always done what I believe either or believe is best for them either but mm-hmm. I do think that helps when things go wrong less wrong but wrong for them to feel sort of trusting that they won't be judged
2: yeah I've always tried to let them know what I'll never judge them whatever happens i'm always here for them and and they know that so that's that's really all you can do i mean i think everybody is a parent i mean there's no handbook we just do the best that we can do
1: i just wanted to get a plug in there for for honest conversations with kids absolutely (laughs) Um, you know of course my kids were 14 and two and a half Mm -hmm. when my wife died and mm-hmm. so that's when I think about honest conversations. You know, I think about that too. Um, Absolutely, letting them in on the fact that that was going to happen and what it meant. You know, stethoscopes on the heart and all that. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I generalize that that principle. I
2: know, and for, I think people try
1: to protect children.
2: You know, they wouldn't be able to understand it or take in. But I think we discredit them. I think they they know they know when things are up <laughs> or you know they i think there's no point changing the the language i just say it as it is and just be honest with them
1: mm-hmm. i completely agree with you maybe it's a maybe it's therapists discover that with their kids maybe <laughs> it works out better when you when we just oh, yeah. when we just say but then you have to be prepared to say uh you said that your kids um uh, Kind of pushed your work, and I would say the same about myself that Mm -hmm. I wanted to be as worked out as I could be so that I could relate to them and not avoid stuff.
2: Yeah, you know, it it just took me so long to finally become a mum, and I just thought if I still have all this fear, I'm going to project it onto my kids. What would be the point? Mm. Fears and my paranoia. So I had to really, because of them, I had to work it for me to create a better. Environment for them as well, so yeah, I'm very grateful that I ended up having them because it's, it's Obviously very well My yep. children, but it's, it's really helped to work me as well
1: and You know it was interesting to read the process of coming to decide to do that because mm-hmm. um, You you were not thinking you would and I think that's uh, courage in itself because of mm-hmm. course some part of us knows kids are going to open everything up. I think yeah. we know that somewhere in there. Yeah, I, I
2: don't think at the time I thought that. I just thought I just had to get past, you know, never the fear of of giving birth or having being pregnant and being a mom. And then eventually, yeah, I came to see that this was going to be a challenge.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think I knew consciously either, but... Mm. I can see that it would be a little bit obvious if I had thought about
2: it. Well, now it's really obvious,
1: isn't it? But at the time... It's really obvious now. Yeah. (laughs) So you've just come out with this book, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your hopes for it. You know, you've obviously put a great deal into writing it, into uh, describing that whole process of change in you, because it's one thing to you know, keep up with your process of change and then it's a good, uh, another thing to kind of recapture it in the telling. Uh, That takes a lot, I know. And I know that you had, uh, I think you told me on the break that you tried a lot of publishers before you found one. So again, very resilient. Yep. Um, I didn't give up. (laughs) You just give up. If something just is the way to go for you is, is what it seems like. And so I imagine that you have a picture of where you would like the book to go and how you, how you would like people to experience it what you'd like I, to nev-
2: I never it. really have a picture in my mind but what I would like it to do or to is just to bring some hope for people and and the sharing of my story you know, people tell me that I'm brave because it is very detailed and and what they did to me but I don't want to be considered brave. I'd like it to be considered normal that we talk about sexual violence and rape and the impact it has on our life and what it takes to heal and recover. I think it should just be part of normal, everyday conversation. And what I've discovered, which I knew already, that my story is just a story of many, many people, women and men and children. And I get messages from people disclosing their stories so many times you know, after they've read my book or they've heard me do an interview or, or saw something. And yeah, that just needs to be more, more done. Mm.
1: So it sounds as if part of your hope would be that people who have these experiences would feel freed to tell. Yeah. Free to to find their own voices. Yeah, I mean, I don't
2: expect everybody to be able to speak publicly like I've done, but I think that the biggest is to find someone that they trust and just to tell their story in its entirety and to be listened to and to
1: be.
2: I don't think there's anything more powerful than that.
1: That's sort of the heart of maybe what we do in our safe little offices. Hopefully safe, (laughs) safe offices is offer the ear. Maybe, you know, that's the biggest part of it.
2: Yeah, to to give it oxygen, you know, something that's been trapped inside for so long. I I think that's very powerful.
1: You know, this this subject, too, of the way women are treated and. um, And. Kind of our bodies and how they're related to is so big in my country right now
3: mm-hmm.
1: because it's become permissible to talk in very um graphically oppressive terms about women and their bodies. Mm-hmm. even if it doesn't if even if it doesn't result in what you experienced, there's a there's an underlying damage to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know any
2: of my friends, women, men that I've come across that haven't been had some kind of sexualist or spoken to incorrectly at all. Most people that I know have come have had that happen to them.
3: Hmm.
1: So, and so the 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 damage of that is the thing itself, but I I think the shame that you're talking about that's the biggest thing you you've come to peace with in a way absolutely
2: and that's what i hope by sharing my story is people can see i'm not ashamed anymore to say that i've been raped and it will help them to realize that they don't own they shouldn't own the shame that they do that it's inappropriate the shame really only lies with the perpetrators and and i think the more we speak about it
1: hopefully we can end the culture of it one day too and it's, it, I, I feel there's an, an irony. I'm in a choir and we sing in prisons a lot. And so I've thought mm-hmm. about prisons a lot. And, you know, prisons are full of people who've been abused themselves and then have hurt others. Yeah. And the load of shame that comes with that, how do we address that? Because, yeah. you know, it's, it's true what you said. Most people who do damage have experienced damage. Yeah. I think hurt people hurt people. Mm. Mm. And so, do you believe uh, that you'll do a lot more speaking as well? Well, I'm i am sure you're getting out to let people know about your book right now,
2: yes? Yeah, um, I've been doing book launches and things, but yeah, as always, the more I speak somewhere as well, so I just really, I don't really plan too much, I just see where it all goes
1: see who comes your way huh
2: yeah well i'm
1: very glad madeline that i came your way it's been glad i've come across really you good talking with you and i hope people like will that. go find uh madeline black to find her book unbroken at madelineblack.co.uk um it's also on amazon and um such as that uh next week I'll have Ned Buskirk back on the show. He was on once already to talk about the nonprofit that has come out of his monthly events called you're going to die. We'll be talking about the direction of his project and what he's learned over the years about the power of thinking and sharing art about our deaths. This has been good grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm.